I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about all things media. Today, my colleague Meg Dalton has a great conversation with Sarah Green Carmichael of the Harvard Business Review. Sarah is the executive editor of HBR, and she's also the host of one of its new podcasts, Women at Work. It's a pop-up series about gender and the workplace, which is something that we've all been thinking about as the Me Too movement has become part of the national conversation. After that, we'll dive into some of the week's biggest media stories. But first, here's Meg's conversation with Sarah. Let's talk about the Women at Work podcast. It features conversations about the workplace and women's role in it. Was this something that you were thinking about before Me Too, or is it more of a response to the movement? I think that we had noticed for a while that the content we were publishing on HPR.org on gender was both among our most read content and often some of the content we as editors felt most proud of. Um, And I think for us, Me Too really sort of got us to sit up and say, wait a minute, you know, we've been publishing really great stuff on this for years. There's got to be more we can do with this. And so it's kind of both. It, it was something we've been working on and thinking about for a while. And then the the moment kind of provided the excuse we needed uh, to really get off our chairs and, and do something more. And so before Women at Work launched, what kind of coverage were you doing about gender for HBR? So we have pretty close relationships with um, researchers at top business schools and think tanks. And so whenever they have new data coming out on, uh, you know, the wage gap or women in the C-suite or uh, women in likability or any any of these topics we know influence women at work, um, they let us know. So we're often publishing brand new research on this topic. Um, and that's really been a lot of the focus. And yeah, we see those pieces do really, really well for us. They get a lot of pickup in other outlets and, and not always places that you would expect to see talking about HBR. You know, they've been picked up by Jezebel and... New York magazines, The Cut, um, and other places where, you know, we're delighted to be part of that conversation. So both our readers love it. And also it seems like it's a, you know, a great way to get HBR into a conversation we sometimes are not in. And so with the new podcast, what value are you hoping it adds to the burgeoning Me Too conversations happening within journalism and also other industries? So I think the thing about the Me Too moment that has struck me is that when it started, it was all about sexual predation, right? And now what we've seen in the months since then is that it's really expanded to include other kinds of sexual encounters, but also non-sexual kinds of abuse and harassment. And I think we're starting to have a broader conversation now about women's place in the world and especially women's place in the workplace. And so I'm hoping that our conversations on women at work really help extend the conversation and push the conversation further. And and there's so much, you know, advice out there for women and so much of it is conflicting and impossible to execute. Like, you know, be firm, but be nice and negotiate, but not too aggressively, you know, and it's we really just needed the kind of time and space that you can really get in the audio form and often not in other forms. I think the audio form is uniquely suited to those kinds of conversations. And so that's why we wanted to do this as a podcast. Um, So you mentioned that audio was the best medium to have these conversations. Can you explain a little bit more about why that is? 
Yes. So I think audio is the best way to have some of these nuanced conversations where there's lots of different perspectives. But I also think there is something about the podcast format in particular that is great for reaching women. We know from looking at Bureau of Labor Statistics data, for example, that women are busier than men. Uh, We take on more of the housework. We tend to have less leisure time. Women are always multitasking. And we know that especially our female readers and listeners are always multitasking. So to me, like the podcast is the perfect form for a multitasking audience. And it's the original mobile format, right? It's It's a perfect mobile format. So we thought this is not only a great way to have these conversations, but also the ideal way to reach women. And so it's a six part series and each episode zooms in on one specific issue, whether it's making yourself heard at work or navigating relationships with coworkers. How did you determine what to include and what not to include you know, in the limited run series? It was so hard because there were so many topics that we wanted to tackle. And as we've done this six-part series, we've only thought of more. Um, but I think we we knew we wanted to start with making yourself heard because there's a ton of really interesting research out there on uh, what it takes to be persuasive and influential in the workplace. And the techniques that, you, that work for men sometimes work for women, but they sometimes don't. So we definitely knew we wanted to dig into that. Um, so often we were starting with, you know, where is there a really good base of research and data to start from? And, and then it was also personal interest. You know, we it turned out we all had sort of lots of thoughts on how your spouse influences your career or your how your partner influences your career. So we thought, let's do a whole episode on that. You know, there's a lot out there on, you know, how motherhood affects women's careers and, and not quite as much that's been said on and how your spouse or partner might influence your career. So some of it was sort of personal interest and research, and then and then it was kind of just like, where do we really feel we can contribute something new? And so you mentioned kind of sexual harassment being at the forefront of the Me Too movement and conversations about gender and the workplace. What are some of the other complex issues that you dive into with the podcast? Yeah, so we are, one of the episodes Well, our most recent episode as we're taping this interview is all about leading with authenticity, which is one of my favorites that we've done so far. Um, We had a great conversation with Tina Opie, who's a a professor at Babson, who talked a lot about how authenticity is different for women of color and white women um, and, you know, how we can all sort of try to bring our best selves to work. Future episodes, we have a great episode coming up on... um, on the wage gap and how it widens over time and what does it mean to be a woman in your career getting older. One of the things I'm most excited about is that we're working on pulling together an advice show. So we want to take questions from listeners about, you know, problems they've faced at work and um, match them up with sort of research-based answers for what they can do. And then, you know, either either through the podcast or just in your own personal experience, do you think there are issues specific to journalism regarding gender in the workplace that might not be in other industries as much? That's a great question. I mean, there are lots of ways that I could answer that question. I think the thing I think about the most is that as journalists, we are representing the world. So when we hold that mirror up to the world, it should really be an accurate reflection of everyone in it. And I I think a lot of times, unwittingly and unintentionally, people in journalism reflect their own world and not the world at large. So I, I think what we're trying to do with this podcast is make sure that, you know, we are not just reflecting the world of three, you know, educated women sitting in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, but that we're having a conversation that's much more inclusive. 
So the Harvard Business Review's audience uh, typically skews male. You know, on your flagship podcast, IdeaCast, I read that 75% of the, the listenership identified as male. I'm curious, what's the breakdown of the women at work audience so far? And kind of more broadly speaking, what are you doing to engage people of all genders to tune in? Yes. I love that question because I do think that there's a lot that men can learn and non-women of all kinds can learn. (laughs) I know we're on a spectrum now of genders, so I try not to be binary. But um, I know there's a lot that all kinds of people can learn from the show. I think and we've been getting some great um, emails from people who don't identify as women who are saying that they are learning a lot from listening to the show. In terms of outreach, I think, you know, we've been tweeting about it from all of our social media accounts and we promoted it on the IdeaCast, which does have a heavily male audience. Um, I've been personally trying to encourage men to sign up. Um, and I think, you know, our, our sort of promo that we did on the IdeaCast very much was aimed at both men and women. I don't know what the current breakdown of women at work is. You know, podcast stats, as anyone who does podcasts knows, are not super great. You know, you have to kind of do a listener survey usually to get get that kind of data. Um, So we will do that. Right now, we are just sort of focusing on the the kind of stats that you do get from the major podcast providers. HBR's audience writ large is more male than female, but we have a really significant female readership, and it's more than a lot of other business publications have. So we were surprised to see that only 25% of IdeaCast listeners uh, were female. So That was also part of our hope in doing Women at Work is that maybe there's women out there who just aren't being served by the IdeaCast who would find a conversation that was more tailored to them and their experiences more interesting. Turning now to the news of the week, I'm joined by two of my favorite colleagues, Sejera Delacourt Fellows, Karen K. Ho, and John Alsop. Karen, good to have you here. Thanks. And John, good to have you back. Thank you. All right, we start this week in Pyeongchang, South Korea, where the Olympics have dominated media coverage and many of our conversations in the office. Uh, I've been watching way too much curling somehow as background music at home. But I'm interested in what you guys think about the journalism side of this event that's really, uh, it's sports, it's entertainment, but there's also a serious journalism side to what's going on. I think there's been a lot of really great coverage of issues like sexual harassment, eating disorders, and also what it means to be an out gay athlete in the United States. These are really serious issues, and athletes are making these topics um, things that reporters really need to cover and discuss um, about the larger implications well after these games are over. Yeah, I wrote a piece earlier this week about how during the Olympics we kind of see uh, an absence of the stick to sports mantra that sometimes dominates coverage of football or the NBA or whatever. And it's not just you know coverage of the Olympic teams and personalities and some of the issues they bring up. It's also obviously a, a event taking place 50 miles from the North Korean border. So that's been part of the coverage too. Yeah, it has. And there has been some some good coverage of the geopolitical um, ramifications. I think it's also important to note that it's not just an Olympics taking place in that uh, in that environment. It's a, it's an Olympics which has had a huge impact on the content of the geopolitics, the way it's playing out. So clearly there's an intersection there that you can't avoid if you're a, a politics reporter. Yeah, I assume you're referring to North Korea sending athletes and 
Kim Jong-un's sister and her the whole coverage of her uh, appearance on the scene in the first days of the Olympics? Yeah. I mean, I, clearly this is a, a big diplomatic move on their part, right? I mean, it's hard to know the exact intentions of the North Korean regime, but if we didn't have an Olympics in South Korea right now, the geopolitical situation would look different. So clearly there's no chance that reporters doing an honest job could separate the sports and the geopolitics out there. Clearly there are differences, but they're, they're fused issues here. Yeah, I've been really impressed with the coverage overall, especially on the print side. Um, And I feel like singling out Christine Brennan at USA Today, who was on top of that Adam Rippon and Mike Pence story in which Rippon, uh, the first openly gay U.S. Winter Olympics athlete, criticized Pence for some of his past comments about gay conversion therapy. She did a great job on that story. And then she was one of the reporters who really brought up uh, accusations about Sean White and sexual harassment after he won a gold medal earlier this week. So, Karen, I know you've been following some of the coverage, both of those issues and of the diversity of the team and the reaction to that. I think it's a really interesting moment in in terms of whether it be gay rights or, or you know, the Me Too. There's this really interesting intersection of uh, all of these issues being discussed at once. And it's been interesting in, in watching reporters try to cover them and and in you know in the midst of uh, talk radio discussions or sort of nightly news discussions about like who won the medals of that day. Yeah, and I've been impressed, perhaps surprisingly so, with the way NBC's handle it. Um, during the competitions, they're putting on you know an entertainment show that they paid almost a billion dollars for, and they need to draw a big audience. And so they've stayed away from some of the politics during the competitions, which is you know I, I guess fine. But Mike Tirico asked Ripon uh, after his skate. Sunday night about his feud with Mike Pence. On Wednesday morning during the Today Show, Savannah Guthrie kind of gently confronted Sean White about uh, some comments he made when he was asked about the sexual harassment allegations. He called it gossip on Tuesday night. And she said, is there any way you'd like to address that? And she followed up. It It was impressive from NBC, which is generally seen as you know, sometimes doing less serious journalism um, and more entertainment, at least during their uh, non-nightly news segments. I think Savannah is in a unique position having, you know, her show been directly affected by um, these sexual harassment and assault allegations. I mean, her show was transformed as a result of that. And so it doesn't surprise me that she may have felt emboldened or that there was a climate that she could address this during a show format that is often seen as not very serious or political. Yeah, and I've been kind of curious to see the response online to um, NBC tweeting out those clips uh, to Christine Brennan and others who have talked about Adam Rippon and Mike Pence. And there's definitely people in the mentions saying you should stick to sports, you shouldn't be using this moment to talk about those divisive issues. But overall, I think that the coverage has been impressive. And then when you bring in hard news reporters, uh, some of the newspapers obviously have bureaus over there, and they're really doing good work on the geopolitical side. So again, this is in some ways the, the ideal of journalists not sticking to sports and using the focus of a huge audience on the games to address some really serious issues, be they domestic or international. All right, from South Korea to some work being produced right here in this building. Uh, We mentioned last week in our conversation with our editor, Kyle Pope, that CJR has a new magazine issue out focusing on threats to journalism. And John has a great piece in there looking at newspaper carriers, a job that we don't think about too often as part of journalism, but it's a really great piece where you look at the dangers that newspaper carriers face uh, in the course of doing their jobs. Yeah, I think, you know, to the extent that most people do think about paper carriers, they think about these sort of 
halcyon images of 15-year-old kids cycling around the neighborhood chucking the paper onto the front lawn, right? Which is definitely not something that really tends to happen anymore. Um, in fact, most carriers these days are adults, and, and some of them are in a pretty vulnerable situation. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I found, uh, and clearly this was not an exhaustive data troll, but I found that there was some um, depressing number of newspaper carriers who have been killed or who've died on the job in, in the last kind of 30 to 40 years. Yeah, there was a striking statistic in there where you found that, what, since the early 90s, more newspaper carriers have been killed in the U.S. than journalists? So the Committee to Protect Journalists keeps data, I think, in every country from 1992 onwards about journalists who have been killed because of or during their work. Um, the figure for the USA is seven. I think that rises to nine if you take into account cameramen or other media workers. Um, the figure that I found, and again, not a comprehensive figure for newspaper carriers, was 23. And that was only taking into account people who were either murdered or who were killed as a direct result of the violent behavior of someone else, maybe a, a manslaughter example. And some of these stories are horrifyingly sad. These people very often have no choice but to go into dangerous neighborhoods at very early hours of the morning and drive around very slowly delivering a newspaper. And, and then there are the cases of newspaper carriers who seem to be targeted because their work is so repetitive. They are in the same place every single day, uh, like clockwork in many cases. I interviewed the family of a woman from North Carolina who 10 years ago was stabbed repeatedly in the throat outside a gas station. The parents, they, they still don't know who did it. The parents think it was someone who was spying on her route and who attacked her in a very premeditated way. She was eight and a half months pregnant at the time. So... Yeah, really crazy stories, kind of hidden stories. Not an epidemic by any means, but certainly a dangerous thing that we should pay attention to. And your piece was a great example of uh, something I really appreciated about the, the new issue, which is we think about threats to journalism when it comes to reporting from conflict areas or reporting in countries with autocratic regimes that don't respect a free press. We think about threats from lawsuits here in the U.S., but there were a number of pieces that focused on threats I hadn't really considered. So one of the pieces that really struck me was Maria Bustila's story on archives. And I think it's a thing that we don't think about as much because uh, either we have misconceptions about what happens to work that is published, especially online, or that is perceived to be archived online. And what Maria's piece highlights is that all of that is very tenuous. It can be deleted in an instant. And if you're not actively managing uh, your own personal archive or if they're, uh, and, and even places like the Internet Archive and the Wayback Machine won't have thorough or complete copies of everything that you've produced. Yeah, I agree. That struck me because I kind of just assumed that stuff that's on the Internet lives there forever, right? It's not like it's decaying like some old newspaper crumbling in a, a library basement somewhere. But you mentioned the erasure of archives, which can happen when, say, a malicious billionaire buys a site and deletes all of its uh, work, which is something that is threatened to happen if Peter Thiel, who destroyed Gawker through a lawsuit and now wants to buy it, gets a hold of it, that he's able to go in and delete those archives and we lose all of that reporting. Another one that I really liked was Michelle Dean wrote a piece about the danger posed by non-disclosure agreements or NDAs, basically that don't allow journalists who experience things, say, in the workplace with regards to harassment to, to speak out and to inform the public about what's going on in these institutions that we trust to bring us transparency and fill us in on what's really happening in the world. So one of my overall takeaways was that here in the U.S., we face a, a ton of threats in journalism that we often don't think about. But the issue was obviously not just about the U.S. Yeah, it, 
it highlights using uh, information and data gathered from a CPJ about um, the threats that journalists are facing worldwide and how many of them are genuinely facing physical and real violent threats. And on Tuesday, you know, Turkish journalists visited our offices and told us they are basically under threat of being arrested on a daily basis. And and I think it's a very sobering thing that we here in the United States need to remember is that what we are experiencing right now is a turning point in terms of um, threats to press freedom, to our ability to report. But in many other countries around the world, the threats are much more serious and literally life-threatening on a much more regular basis. Yeah, hearing about what the the Turkish journalists were were saying in the office, uh, it definitely does provide some context and reminds us, like, not to get too myopic. We're concerned about you know threats from the president. We're concerned about major financial problems here in the U.S. But it's important to remember the context of the very real bodily threats that journalists around the world are facing. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I completely agree with Karen that. Um, it's incumbent on us here in the United States to to remember these really shocking examples of loss of liberty and, and physical violence that target journalists every single day in many countries around the world. Um, I do think, though, and I think a thing this issue does really well is show that threats to journalism, especially in this country, are very different in their texture. Right. So I certainly don't feel like I'm personally under physical threat while I report here. That is different for some people who report in this country. But I think on the whole, the physical threat is much lower than it is clearly in, in Turkey or Egypt or, or those kinds of countries. But, you know, I saw a very smart take the other day that sort of the best way to harm the press is to gradually chip away at institutions, right? And that is what we are seeing in this country. You gradually chip away at institutions, you gradually chip away at trust. And by the end, you have a country which probably looks a lot more like a country where a journalist could be killed or imprisoned than what we have now. So I think it's about taking the whole basket of threats, physical threats, both here and and particularly overseas, but also these kind of threats at home about the erosion of institutions, the kind of monopoly of big businesses like Facebook. These are all real challenges that we face. And I think we should not be complacent about the sort of real physical consequences those could have if they're not checked 30 or 40 years down the line. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to my colleagues, Karen and John, for talking over the news of the week and to Sarah Green Carmichael of the Harvard Business Review for speaking with Meg earlier. Please check out all of the great magazine pieces we've got up at cjra.org in addition to our usual quality web-based content. We appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next week.